Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Real Podcast Network. Today, you are going to hear part two of my conversation with the great chef, Christina Tosi, someone I am incredibly close to and have been through a lot with. Today's conversation covers a little bit more about our inner workings, our relationship, and where she has decided to take things. And again, apologies if you are hearing things that seem to be too as I say, inside baseball, there's two esoteric because we have a rapport that is sort of hard to fake. It is like talking to one of my siblings, but she is someone that I have great admiration for and is constantly still pushing me to be better and likewise to her. She's opening up a new milk bar flagship on 7150 Melrose near Pink's in the Fairfax area. Highly recommend you guys to check it out. They obviously have locations everywhere. I feel like a brother or like some kind of parent in some way because I'm so proud of her and what she's done. And and now I understand. It's like I want to like promote her like I've never promoted anyone before because there's very few people that work as hard as her and deserve it. So I will shut up now and uh, let you hear the second part of my podcast with Christina Tosi. The other important moment, and I feel like it's important duty for me to continue talking about it, is WD-50 and when you were there. You've spoken about it before in other pods, on Koppelman's pod, and it's there, but what does the world not know about WD-50 and why it was so fucking different and ahead of its time? I mean, WD-50 set the future of New York City and arguably food evolution worldwide. I think that the biggest misconception is that Wiley is a mad scientist and it's a bunch of molecular gastronomy and chemicals and food. I think working there as a cook, my greatest example would be that a cook that was considering what restaurant they would go to work at next would be like, I don't want to work at WD-50. I want to like learn how to like sear a steak and work the meat station. I don't want to just put a bunch of food in plastic bags. I think that is human nature trying to organize and make sense of this universe that Wiley Dufresne had in his head and translated through his restaurant. He was the pioneer of thinking about food and flavor and translating it in unexpected ways, i.e. not just a great piece of, not like a great seared New York strip, but rather I'm going to do a play on beef and potatoes. And so what I'm going to give you is the flavor of beef or the texture of beef or the great caramelization and sear on the exterior of a beef, but I'm going to give it to you in a way that is unexpected. I am going to use my imagination to tie into your emotional being and your emotional neuroses through the food that I make in unexpected ways. And I think it was that simple and that poignant. He discovered a brand new way of thinking about food, and he never regurgitated. He found a way of understanding convention and then breaking it that is very much the foundation of which some, if not a strong part of how I approach my time in the kitchen when I'm thinking about a new dish off of. Wiley Dufresne is incredibly close to the both of us, and he's now has Dew's Donuts, and he's got a few other things in the works. That's a special bond that we have, Mm -hmm. him and his family and Miley and 
everyone that came out of WD-50, and I do not like it at all by reminiscing about it and trying to explain to people the significance of it mm. because his career is still happening. But I get incredibly upset when I hear, when I think about how he was shortchanged. Yes. I feel like he was fucking shortchanged. He was shortchanged. People. I mean, you think about when WD-50 was— at its peak, even when 41 Clinton, which was a restaurant before WD-50, he was doing all of these insane things in food right before food media Single, hit. Single most important chef in New York City, I think. I believe he really genuinely single-handedly helped transform the Lower East Side. Yeah, for sure. No contest. And was just so fucking far ahead of the curve that— it's unfortunate. And I will say this. I don't think the critics fucking knew what they were I doing. I don't think they could understand it. Because there was also, no reference point. There was no reference point. And who were the food critics? Like, maybe there were two. Maybe there were three. Like, that is painting that landscape when you take a step back is like, oh, no one could wrap their head around it, let so, alone share it, exactly. let alone put it to words. It's so hard to document what happened and to talk about the significance of what happened on Clinton Street. Yes. And it bothers me that I have to talk to chefs, younger chefs, and tell them. And I don't know if they care. And mm-hmm. I can't force them to care. But what I hate about this industry, one of the things, is that it's hard to make it a living, breathing thing that people can go back into. But why do you think that is? Do you think it's because modern day now industry is, we're obsessed with the like, what's hot now, not understanding the history that it was built upon? Yes, and also the history of WD-50 and Wiley Dufresne is put or captured in a context of media that never understood it to begin with Mm -hmm. because they were 10 years behind, literally. Yes. And— you that know, media was limited, and by the time media expanded, right. there were 10 other people that were just literally ripping Wiley off yes. that were getting the credit. And, you know, he has delicious donuts, and I know he's got a few other things, and i got to catch up with Wiley because I haven't seen him in a while. But you know, I whenever- just talked to him on the phone the other day. <laughs> he's, he is alive and kicking and crushing and, of course, has 101 amazing ideas. And that's the thing is I always associate you, obviously, with Boulay, but the time you spent at probably the most significantly important kitchen in America the past 50 years. That's not hyperbole for me. I really yeah. believe that. And what I think gives you this completely unique perspective besides your background in Northern Virginia and UVA, JMU, one of my favorite things about you is how you transferred out of UVA to go to JMU. I love that about you. Like almost everyone in Virginia tries to transfer from JMU to UVA, but you're like, fuck this. You learn French technique. You wonder Alex at uh, one of the great pastry chefs in America at Boulay. What's Alex's last name again? Uh, I almost said Gordon. Shelley Gruner. Gruner. Alex Gruner. Great guy. Great chef. And then you spent time at just like the most amazing place. And... Working under Wiley that was implementing a new way of cooking and thinking that was ahead of the curve and making incredibly delicious stuff. And you had that and you had so many great cooks that were there those first few years. You also couldn't have had two better mentors in the pastry department, Sam Mason and Alex Dupac. And that has to be a documentary in and of itself, those two figures within that pastry section. (laughs) And being there in the transition of both. How would you describe Sam? Like, again, Sam has the terrific ice cream parlor Oddfellows, but at a period of time, he was, 
I think oh, the greatest. It. it. His he was show was it so as far good. as pastry chefs were concerned. I mean, Sam Mason is the original hipster and the original hip male pastry chef that all other hipster men, chefs, or pastry chefs base themselves off of, right? He's got, like, the gel in his hair. He's got sleeves of tattoo. He's got jewelry on. He's got, like, his perfectly manicured facial hair, and he's got a wicked imagination and technique to boot. He was it. What he was doing with dessert, somehow what's interesting about it is he also, I would argue, a very short-changed pastry chef, got just as much, if not sometimes more credit than Wiley because somehow the nostalgic element of turning dessert on its head is more gettable to the food media, at least back then, for a food media that was struggling to comprehend what Wiley was doing. They could at least understand what, like, this little log of deep-fried French toast and maple gel and brown butter ice cream, which saying it out loud right now is like, yeah, we would find that on dessert menus <laughs> all across the U.S. That was like so good, just groundbreaking. Um, his ice creams are so fucking. His good. ice cream is so good. All the desserts, unbelievable. And then Stupak, who had polar opposite, polar opposite from a personality standpoint, polar opposite from an approach to a dessert and the warmth and love and care of a dessert, but. Every bit the technician and the visionary. And that's what was crazy to me is like you have probably the one of the most naturally gifted, intuitive, I'm just going to make something and it's going to be awesome chefs in Alex. And then you have the overlord of Wiley creating a structure. (laughs) And then Sam leaves and God damn, remember that that was such huge news. And then Wiley got Alex from Alinea Mm -hmm. and everyone was like, what? And... To not only see the desserts that he was putting in and soft chocolate and the new techniques that he was creating, again, groundbreaking yeah. shit. Soft chocolate back then was it, I And I see it on every fucking menu <laughs> yeah. and all between There's those two dudes, I see right so now. many fucking <laughs> knockoff copies. It pisses the shit out of me. Oh, man. But it was interesting to me if you put both of these like incredibly important figures in food. They're on the opposite ends of the spectrum in my book, but equally important. And you got a master class in, I don't even know, who who could have created that environment for you? It was the best thing you possibly could. That's actually a really good point. I don't know that I've ever really stopped to take a step back to think about it in that way. I mean, I worked for arguably two of the greatest pastry chefs. In completely different philosophies. Yeah, without ever having to change my commute to work. It was amazing. And you're you're working with Rosio Sanchez, who's now was the Noma pastry chef yeah. and now running her own little empire in Copenhagen. There was just a concentration of crazy talent. Yeah. I mean, WD50 had this insane soul because it wasn't it wasn't for the faint of heart and not in the way that Boulay wasn't for the faint of heart. It wasn't for the faint of heart because there were only two spots in the pastry department. There were only six spots in the kitchen. And I don't know that Wiley ever had ever, ever, ever in the history of the restaurant ever even posted for a job because it was almost as though people would line up outside the doors. But the reason that I also say that it wasn't for the faint of heart, because you literally would basically just had to offer to do anything and everything to make an impression so that you would be considered when an actual role was open. But think about it. If it's a restaurant that is breaking 
every single rule in the book and redefining it, what are you actually bringing to the table as a cook? You don't know a single technique that happens in that restaurant until you work in that restaurant. So you're going in as a cook and you can't be like, yeah, hey, what's up? I'm here for the sous chef role. Like you literally are like, I know nothing, teach me everything. And you have to be willing to bring yourself down to that level and to say that out loud, to even just get in the door at WD-50. And then beyond that, you are put on this rigorous path of working with the highest level of integrity, working in the cleanest environment possible, being as kind as humanly possible, because Wiley would never let an outbreak or an outrage happen in that kitchen. You had the most skilled technician watching your every single move. And beyond that, he wanted to know what you thought. And there could be no scarier concept as a cook than to actually be asked by the chef what you thought. And if you told him, I like it, I think it's good, he would ask you why. And you damn well better have a good reason for it because nothing was ever good enough for him. And I mean that in the most beautiful way and not in the nothing was ever good enough for him in the negative sense. It's amazing. Like all the people that came out of that kitchen and the stupendous things they've done and Alex transitioning from pastry chef to running his own empire now in Peon. Rushing it. And we could talk about Wiley forever, but I just want any listener to know if Wiley Dufresne ever comes to your restaurant or a place of eatery, he loves gum. Mm. He loves tomatoes. <laughs> loves loves tomatoes. Peppers. Peppers. For oysters. Oysters. Mm, just send him a giant plateau Triple of oysters. plateau, please. Also, he is the great chef that is never happy until you've fed him every single thing. He yes. likes to feel yes. like a suckling yes. pig at the end and of the meal. That guy loves spicy food like Ooh. I have never met. Ooh. Just douse your shit Ooh. in spice and he will be Covered overjoyed. In sriracha, really. Love you, WD. <laughs> So, like, again, through Wiley, and you covered it in the Netflix episode, but we met through that. And I had declared holy war on the health department. (laughs) (laughs) I might have called someone a terrible book-burning Nazi. You have more courage when it comes to naming (laughs) names than I do, I have to say. You win that one. I got a lot of fucking trouble. I got... Wow, that was a lot of trouble. And I regret starting a war with a opponent I was never going to beat. And, um, you know, that was an interesting time that we still had one restaurant. It was 600 square feet and I had a cryovac machine and I thought it was everything was awesome. And I was so lucky to have gotten and started a relationship with Wiley. And he was the first person I called because I was patient number one. Yeah, you were. You were. They had no clue what to do with you because of the technique And they also had no clue what to do with you because of the outburst and the outrage. I mean, they did not know what to do with you. They basically had you in quarantine. Yeah, they did. You ever see that movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman? That was me. (laughs) And I was so pissed because I was doing everything right. And without going too deep into it, we were storing things, not cooking in vacuum, which is now sous vide, which is now like you can buy it at Mm Williams-Sonoma. But... uh, I was storing it because we were an incredibly busy restaurant and I needed to reduce the size of storage in my walk-in. So I put everything in vacuum and uh, I thought everything was great. And we got a health department checkup and they came in and I was like, check it out, man. My fucking shit is tight. Look how organized our restaurant is. But can you also pause? Because at that point you were at that moment of like whatever it takes to keep 
the thing, yes. this restaurant that you had put everything on the line for yes. to just keep it afloat. Because I think understanding that guard also. Every day was a day that might be their last day of business. <laughs> I mean, that's just what it was. Yes. And uh, that's not hyperbole. And hyper we don't fail. No. And we're not built to fail. Failure is not an option. And they came down and they fucking saw it. I, this massive cryovac machine. And for all intents and purposes, I could have told them it was a weapon of mass destruction because that's how they viewed it. Or a yeah. time machine. They were like, yeah. I've never seen anything like yeah. this before. P.S. You're on First Avenue between 10th and 11th Street. You were, if we say Wiley pioneered the Lower East Side, you were a pioneer in the East Village. So it also made zero sense to them that they would walk into an East Village hole-in-the-wall restaurant and find such, like, cleanliness, such organization, and this crazy time machine, it right? Like, like six, it would make The multi-thousand-dollar no machine that I spent so much money on because I knew it was going to pay dividends. Long story cut short, they didn't have a protocol for storing or cooking in vacuum at all. There was like an hour-long conversation with the inspector. They called the headquarters, and they were like, wow. It was like, we have no idea that this is even happening at a restaurant like this. If this is happening, this is a problem. <laughs> they made me open up every fucking bag and pour bleach on it in a trash can. And I was like, maybe I said some inappropriate things to the inspector and then to— They were pouring bleach on the livelihood, on the only yeah. thing you had to stay And I afloat. remember, I think I had to throw out— it was such a horrible day. And uh, I made some terrible fucking analogies, all of which got me in more trouble. And I think there might have been a sliver of window for me not to be put on secret double probation. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but that was long gone. And for like two weeks, we were not able to run a business. And I don't blame the health department. I was a mm -hmm. fucking obnoxious asshole about the whole thing. And I remember desperately calling Wiley because he was very familiar. And little do people know, Wiley wrote the foreword to the Roka Brothers book on the very first fucking book ever on sous vide cooking, which is a historically important book. And uh, I knew that. And I called Wiley. I was like, dude, I need help. And he immediately said, you need to speak to Christina Tosi. She just left us. She's in transition. She's figuring shit out. But she's helping me out. And I called you up and you came over. And long story cut short... Without you, I swear to fucking God, I'm not here. I'm not fucking here. I'll never forget all that you did for me because you taught me basically like, you know what you were like? You were like a lawyer and I was like incarcerated and I was like one of those fucking thugs that go to court with like ripped jeans and I'm smoking a cigarette, just an obnoxious punk. And you were basically like, hey, shape the fuck up. You better talk to them this way. You better be presented this way. You got to do this, this, and this, or you're going to go to jail forever. And I was like, <laughs> fuck, I think she's right. <laughs> Brass tax, man. I remember, I remember every part about it. I remember being like, I want to be more than a pastry cook, which is why I figured out Wiley was dealing with the same thing. And I remember like leaving work one day and being like, being a pastry cook isn't good enough for me. Like doing all the other things isn't good enough for me. I'm not going to get far enough ahead by just being what everyone else is. And Wiley needed the same help. I figured out with the health department. And I remember the day that he introduced us. I remember knowing about you. I know I have told the story before of like the first day. It was, I met you before you met me. I came to Noodle Bar for lunch one day 
as a cook at WD-50. I remember sitting in the ba- sitting two stools from the bathroom. I remember Scotty Garfinkel was running the kitchen that day. <laughs> I remember my order. I remember how crispy burnt the Brussels sprouts were and how delicious they were. I remember Benton's bacon, but ton- like I remember everything about the food. But the thing that I remember the most is I had heard about you. I mean, you were in this way, you were a legend amongst cooks because on some level you were in this interesting place it wasn't like you came from being the chef de cuisine at Danielle to opening your own restaurant you were a cook's cook that had opened their own place in the East Village and God fucking knew what you were doing but somehow the word started getting out on the street that the food was really good in a way that made no sense people were waiting in line it was a neighborhood that you could actually afford to live in as a cook like none of it made any sense none of those things were things that existed back then and so I was like, all right, I'm going to go check this place out. Sat down, all this. Again, food media didn't exist the way it did. So I wasn't really sure who you were or what you looked like. But all of a sudden, this guy was like outside receiving something on the sidewalk. And he looked just like he was like a big, intense porter who would normally receive your food deliveries and deal with like the tricky delivery men. You were yelling at someone. Then you stormed down through the gate. And all of a sudden, you came up through the other side of the kitchen and you started kicking everyone off the line. And you had bottles of orange force, which is like spray, all all purpose cleaner in kitchen terms. And you were spraying down the floor with O force. And then you just had a mop in your hand. And you were like back and forth thing. And for me, it was like the ultimate bull in a china shop moment. You yelled at everyone. You went back online. And I just remember being like, oh, okay, that must be Dave. And I remember sitting there and eating my lunch and being so endeared by you because that intensity that like whatever it takes intensity was of nothing that made any sense to me the one thing that made perfect sense and so when Wiley (laughs) sent me to you I already knew who you were through that and I knew that you would be intense and I knew that you needed help and like my favorite thing in life aside from being intense is helping someone when they need help especially when I can actually be of help and I remember just being like we're gonna clean this up son yeah and you fucking gave me the riot act and I (laughs) you know man like I hopefully I think I've grown I know I have but those moments that you just described, I was like, I am embarrassed that I was insane as I was, but it's hard to explain. I know that you know this. It's like every minute was survival. It was so pure. It was so real. And it was so honest. Like, I get it because I've been there too of like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Like, if anyone else saw me do that, they would be so upset. Like, I am not proud of my actions. But then on the other level being like, it was so honest and so guttural and so real. And I got the sense that it was like, this place is full of integrity and I will not let it stand for a sliver more than absolutely everything I believe in. And honestly, we were not going to survive without your help. And then you came in to speed it up. You got us back into the good graces. <laughs> uh, hallelujah. Love you, New York City Health Department. A little bit of Bruce Springsteen on, the, oh, on, man. The, <laughs> on the speakers. So help. much, so much love. Love you, Beth, at all. You guys are the best. And I learned my lesson. I am a reformed <laughs> punk. And I just knew how intense you were and how organized you were. And truth be told, like, the New York City Health Department still utilizes the documentation that you created for HACCP. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right, which is hazard analysis control. Critical, critical control yeah. points, yeah. Which is what developed by NASA. Anyway, what was amazing is you had a company called Cuisine Solutions, this monstrous company that's really important. And Christina, through her sheer fucking will, outsmarted everyone and did that. And I was still, I'm blown away as to what and how the fuck you did that, right? And more or less, every fucking restaurant in New York City sort of owes you debt that does cook <laughs> in vacuum or store in vacuum because you created the fucking template. That's, That's something nice. that will never be on your like That's your nice. CV, but it's yeah. completely true. Like you've dramatically affected the outcome for restaurants for the positive. Because like after you created that template, I remember other chefs being like, hey, can you send that Give shit to me? Give me that plan. <laughs> Give me that plan. The funny part about the plan, too, is that the health department emails me every time someone sends in one of those plans. That's my plan because they'll be like, oh, someone stole your plan from someone else again. <laughs> and they don't know what it says. So they don't know how to like write it properly to adjust to them. But I never really thought about it like that. Yeah. And that's the thing that I don't know if people will ever understand about you is you have fucking this crazy analytical, mathematical mind that you can do the most detailed shit and be almost like more methodical than like a, a computer could be. Yet you are also this free thinking, insane person at times that allows you to create some of the most delicious creations. And when I saw that, I was like, man, this person's number one, crazy in the best way possible. <laughs> Secondly, she's going to make me feel less crazy. Yeah, keep her she, we were a very male dominated kitchen then. And without a doubt, the most broiest period of Momofuku. Totally. <laughs> and I was just in awe of, oh my God, she is like making every fucking dude in here. They're not scared of you. They're like, she's so great. <laughs> <laughs> dude, there's I mean? a process. I remember early days at Momo. Because you, in your survival tactic, in a, this beautiful way, you were also the first one to go out on their own in this really democratic way to not need to take on crazy investors. You weren't trying to build something fancy and formal. You were doing something that was so honest. And the only way you were actually going to make it is if you basically just started calling in favors from all of the people you knew. So you had this incredible team of guys that you had worked with in some capacity or another that you didn't hate with a bloody passion, which means there were like 10 of them. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like people that you had actually found some sort of respect with. And you'd call them up and be like, just show up, like, just show up and like actually bring your chef whites. We're not actually having a discussion. I need you to work service for me. Yeah. And crazy so days. It, it was crazy days. It was, again, like very poignant, beautiful moments. But I, re dude, I effing remember walking in and being like, oh, I 100% see how you're looking at me. Like I 100% see I totally get it. I totally get it. I look like this little chickadee walking in thinking that I have a place in this restaurant. And I totally get that you have not seen that before and that you do not know what to do with that and you don't know how to hold it. But with each of them, I just had my mindset of like, I get it. This is any kitchen. I got to prove my worth. I got to prove that I mean it. And I got to prove that I'm here and I'm willing to be here when no one else is here. I know how to win the respect. You outworked everyone. And I remember very clearly being like, 
why is Dave like giving her all this freedom? 100%, why is yeah. Dave like giving her the keys to do whatever the fuck she wants? And I remember very clearly being like, what the fuck, guys? Our goal is survival here. We have to think outside of the box here. Yes. You were the first person to be like, no, 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 no. We can't operate this way anymore. And believe that you actually said it, but how you started to professionalize things and how you started to work was in a way that was like, hey, guys, fuck you. Keep up with me. And I dare you. I dare you. And P.S. And, I'm going to make you some cookies. I made these yeah. cookies last night. Yeah. And you killed them with kindness. And I would just sit in the corner being like, oh, man, she is fucking you guys up. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, it was a family. It was the most beautiful family I think I have ever seen in New York City. It was so tight, and every single person was willing to give whatever it took for the next. And that was the kitchen. I mean, for me, I was hooked. Yeah, and I again, I'm saying this. And that this, was you. That was but, 100% but, all you. This is like a lot of love fest right now, but I think about this. Without your addition, besides you saving us from health department hell, you brought a sensibility— and quite frankly, brought us to a non-caveman era of that kitchen. <laughs> that was like incredibly important because it made us realize that like we cannot act like the way we've learned in the past. Mm -mm. There was nothing horrible. It was simply about like it was a fraternity. Yeah. You know, and it was like, uh, this is this shit's <laughs> not. And you were very clear. It was like, no, 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 no. This shit's fucking, we're breaking this shit. We're not doing it this way. <laughs> this is also a dumb way to do it. But you saw that. I mean, I think the other part of it for me is, but you saw that in me. And in a funny way, you saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And for me, the compliment only works if it goes both ways. Because I did not see that in myself. And I worked, I had worked for Wiley before, right? And he knew these things. And I think he saw a little something in me, but he didn't know what to do with it. Or he didn't have the like, not the courage to tame it. He just didn't have the space or the understanding to know what to do with it. And you did, like you saw it and you got it and you did. I saw you take ownership of the Hasselplan. What was your company called? Viva Cucina? Viva La Cucina. Yeah. And the fact that you did all of this work as a side hustle, right? I was like, fucking this girl is scrappy as fuck. Mm -hmm. She's smarter than everyone. She's better at just about everything she wants something in a way that I don't even know, and she definitely doesn't know. I remember clearly thinking this, and I was like, a person like this, as talented as you, and there are a lot of talented people out there, but they rarely have the fucking insane work ethic that matches it, and you have that in spades. I remember very clearly saying to myself, like, I had this eureka moment. I was like, wait, Boulay, they couldn't figure it out. Wiley, who's like the smartest motherfucker ever, couldn't figure it out. And it was because I think that everyone was treating you rationally. Mm. And Donovan was like, oh, this person's crazy. She's like, she's she's off. She's off in the best way possible. And what is <laughs> what and I don't think I ever told you this shit. I was like, oh fuck. Because she's thinking this way, maybe I can empathize in the sense that she's more talented than me. She's smarter than me. I couldn't have gotten UVA if I wanted to because that was always the big hangup for me because like, I was like, oh man, <laughs> Tosi got an UVA and I, I didn't. Stop. No, I'm serious. And I was like, oh, I had this eureka moment. She can only be her own boss. She can take orders from everyone because when you get orders from someone, and I know this after all these years, and you find the flaws in the decision-making, and you see the fact that it was not well thought out or short-sighted, 
And when you find that you could have possibly have done it better, it's not that you lose respect. It's like, oh, I don't need to listen to it anymore. <laughs> you know? And That's so interesting. And I just was like, oh, Christina, I'm giving you free reign. You're no longer just working the fucking office because I knew you had more ambition than that. And I knew the best thing for you was just to push you off the cliff, as I said before, because yeah. you're going to figure out how to fucking like make it work. That's just who you were. And I wanted to give you as much latitude to figure it out. And I've always never thought of myself as super talented, but I was like, man, like she's super talented. I'm going to get the fuck out of her way. <laughs> and that's, that's how it happened. So you shaped the culture. You really did. And you shaped how we were organized in a way that we still use today. It's real but important. You, yeah, you saw it and you carved it out. I mean, I don't know that I could wrap my head around how hard it has to be. People don't do that, though, Dave. Like, they don't go like, oh, that person should be their own boss. I'm going to, like, carve out a niche for them, give them some money. Here, here's some money. Why don't you go and fulfill your dream within our own little universe and be your own boss? But you People were, don't yeah, do that, I, and yeah, you but, did that. But a lot of it was necessity, but also, like, we didn't have the fucking luxury to have bias. Yeah. It was about— staying in business and winning. And I was just thinking about this now. I was like, oh shit, pretty early on. But like around when you came on, what, 2008? 2006. Oh shit, that's right. Because I was there for two, with you for two years before I But you became my fucking conscience and voice of reason. And more or less, you were like the first creative director of Momofuku, Mm. really. Where every idea that was good or bad was like, if Tosi doesn't like it, because I trust your palate, then it's done. So really, we had a relationship that was very exciting because it was all new, but you helped shape a lot of things of Momofuku that you don't get enough credit for, quite frankly. Culturally, you shaped it in a way that I don't even know if the guys that work there understand because you made us professionalize. <laughs> I think that's so funny. I, I look at myself as the least professional yeah, person, but, but, which is saying a lot about this. But think about it. We were basically like, you know, the Lost Boys or Lord of the Flies. And here we Total come someone that's like, no fucking asshole. You don't just put a pinch of something. It's like, measure that shit. Yeah, dude. You know? How are you going to make it the same every single <laughs> yeah. time? Because when I come back every time, it damn well better taste the And same. then you started to bring in your crew, Mary and Mar, God yeah. bless. Shout out to Mayor. Hey, man. And then you started bringing in women. Yeah, only all, women. All of a sudden, there was a whole world of Momo that was only women, and watching <laughs> the men wrap their head around that is probably some of my favorite memories. Is watching Wiley loved having a female in the kitchen at all times because his theory, among many others, one of his many theories to that was. The guys come to work clean, they come clean shaven, and they act a little bit more like gentlemen, right? Because they're like, oh, who's this? And that's obviously like a very traditional approach. But watching the diversity of Momofuku grow was pretty awesome. Momo was always super diverse and super open-minded, but watching it exist in one vacuum through Milk Bar, back to back to Sambar's hotline where you've got dudes angry storming out of that kitchen down to the prep kitchen. It's a different thing. In our little bakery wonderland, our sweet little bakery wonderland was a totally different thing. And you moved from not having a home at the basement of 163. And again, like it's been documented how you've come up with these creations, but these are the sinew and stories that I don't know if people know. And 
when we got the space for Milk Bar and we were looking at, we were actually looking at what is now Little Tong, right? That's right. And it's been a few <laughs> things before it was yeah. Little Tong. And you were like, oh, the woman's so cute. She wears the fucking boots because she has diabetes boots. <laughs> <laughs> and you brought started to assemble this team. Allison. Mm-hmm. Allison Roman. Who's like this. What's up, girl? Superstar now. Yes. And Courtney McBroom and Leslie. It was a. Uh, Murder's Row, and then you had Zoe. Uh, Zoe Kanan, who's like crushing it for Gabe Stolman at the freehand. And it was so funny for me to watch, too, because we still have this remnants of a lot of dudes. And then you guys are just carving out your fucking fiefdom and be like, fuck you guys. <laughs> like, you Harder, guys got to keep— faster, yeah. stronger, uh, it was, better. It gave me so much joy <laughs> because it was like, fuck you guys. You need to keep up with us. <laughs> and it was a fucking landmark moment for Momofuku. It was it like— so funny. Guys, you better wake the fuck up because we're dusting your ass. <laughs> but that competition, I think, bred so many fun, positive things at the time because it kept everyone sharp. We all knew we were on the same team, but at the same time, it gave people a sense of, like, purpose and hilarity in the day, where instead of what, like, old kitchen rules would be, like, turning your back on each other, it created these, like, teams, like, color wars on field day. Where, yeah, we all go to the same school. We're all in the sixth grade. But, like, the color wars element of it, which was so fun. And those relationships that our amazing cooks made with the Sambar cooks at the time— Again, it's still, it's a bond that's perpetuated. But here's the thing. You know who was instigating all of this? And this is what I mean by Christina Tosi shaping the culture. (laughs) It's true. You know who was fucking alpha fucking dog of all this shit? Christina Tosi. And her her band of fucking milk maiden, like milk hard bodies. Like, you guys were the fucking like bullies. And it was hilarious. There was nothing antagonistic, but like it was so important for everyone to see. It's like, oh, this is a merit-based place. It's a merit-based place. And it was also like it was in a beautiful way, like similar to how you describe the original noodle bar, where at least in size, there was literally not a square inch to spare. And so you came to work every day with this beautiful, like, you cannot let a single person steamroll. You can't even have a square of my area right now. I don't have a square to spare, like, that moment. And it created this beautiful camaraderie and this beautiful hilarity and so many inside jokes. And I wish that we could have videotaped and documented that first year of Milk Bar because so much of your success came out during that year. Yes. The tears. Oh. So many fucking yeah. tears because of the the sacrifice and the anguish and just how much you fucking cared. Yeah. And I remember our first massive fucking fight. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. I wanted to hire Helen Joe and you wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> it was before that though. And I, oh wait, what was it before? Pizza ovens. Oh, God. Greatest lesson. I reference that lesson. I'm kind of like, yeah, I reference that lesson. I thought you have it. A lot. You did, and I was so wrong. I was so wrong. We opened Milk Bar. You were so mean to me. I was so mean to you. I was so certain. It's because, I mean, it's that beautiful way of like, you want to be a teammate with someone that has absolute conviction. 
But then the irony of that is at some point you also want that teammate to also be willing to admit when they're wrong. So the original Milk Bar, most people may not remember, it was so glorious in its fucking clusterfuck ways. You had a ticket system, like a fucking deli, (laughs) We had all the ideas (laughs) rolled into one. (laughs) But what was most significant about it, of that small, what, 700 square feet, there was a giant pizza deck oven. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great idea. You hear me talk about like, we had not a square inch to spare. And I was like, oh, let's have a four rack oven, which is where we'd bake cookies. And then let's take up 80% of the kitchen with deck ovens because we're going to make blue cheese polenta loaves and these other beautiful breads amidst like Atkins diet in a city that's really not trying to buy a loaf of bread. And just for the record, this is the first time I've ever brought it up. Stop. I've never really? brought it up. Since that argument? Yeah, I've never brought it Guess up. Guess what? You were right. <laughs> I was wrong. I was right about the lines, though. You, you were used right. to get so mad at me about the lines. You were right about, I didn't push back on this, but I remember this night of tears was, it was a Tuesday night. Lynn Kosu was working the counter alone. I was baking everything on the side. And this was like my wake-up call of like, you're not just the baker, my friend. You're in charge of everything. There was a line out the door of NYU students that had like discovered Milk Bar. And I was standing there like sweeping and watching her just get pummeled. And you came through the back end of Sambar and you saw it and you went down the stairs and you came up. And I could tell you someone else had set you off. They really set me up for failure. But you came back up the stairs and you were like, meet me in the office now. And in the office, you were like, get your head out of your ass. What are you doing? Like that girl is drowning and you're sweeping the floor. All of this is what you're responsible for. Like you're literally watching that person just hang themselves on some level and you're doing nothing about it. Like you don't just run a kitchen, you run an entire business. And it was in plain sight and I could not see it. That was one of my most memorable Dave yells that was the biggest wake-up call. Man, like I'm now, I haven't thought about a lot of these conversations in a long time, but we used to go at it. <laughs> Holy shit. I think shit. it's like two passionate people being passionate. I always left those arguments feeling loved, knowing that I needed like time to get over whatever it was we were yelling at, but never feeling ashamed. I mean, I think in arguments, sometimes the tricky part is you either end up feeling good or feeling bad and there's no in between. And I think of all the dysfunction that's always kind of been the cool thing for me. I know that no matter what happens and whatever we get into, that we're never going to lie to each other in the passion of the moment. There's always going to be honesty and that there's nothing but respect left after it, even though sometimes the recovery time takes a while. And just for people to know, we have both gotten in way better at talking. I mean, so much. Yeah. I mean, in that, honestly— Our relationship on so many levels has made me so much better. One, because you've always been my greatest thought partner and sounding board from that. Not a lot of people will call me out, maybe because I don't give them the permission or because maybe I'm too intense and scary and you are never afraid to do that. And I also just respect you like no other. And so receiving feedback, though sometimes grueling— I can work on my delivery. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but ditto. I can also work yeah. on listening better and and welcoming it in. But it is funny how like 12 years later from the very beginning of all of that before Milk Bar even started, that 12 years into it, I'm like, oh my God, this is the most healthy functioning relationship <laughs> for 12 years I've yeah. ever had. 
Yeah, and I want people to know that like you have had a significant role in the success of Momofuku, not just in your own company, in your own career. And I never forget that. And I genuinely say there are multitude of moments where I don't think Momofuku's around if you don't come into my world, you know? Yeah. So, but um, where is Milk Bar if you aren't like, hey, sis, go out that door and lock me out <laughs> into a new space, you know? I think the same thing of like, what would I even be doing? I think you would be just fine. I'm pretty yeah. sure you would have figured Ditto. it out. <laughs> Ditto, my friend. <laughs> so, like, I, you know, it's funny that we're talking about this because this is how I sort of began the podcast. I know that we'll talk more down the road, and we've been talking a long time already, but the fact is the pain of learning mistakes and trying to grow but continuously changing because I think mm -hmm. that's the struggle. And if, just to be totally open about this, that you've gone through what you captured in that first year of Momofuku um, of Milk Bar was so fucking insane. Mm -hmm. It's a, like the most improbable events that happen. And I know, cause I've experienced this with trying to grow Momofuku is I'm going to try to recreate that mm -hmm. in the best ways possible. Or because it was so great of a moment and, was so instrumental in shaping our cultures and values of to where we are today, we have to preserve it. Hmm. And I have learned that that's the reason why we'll not be successful. Yeah. I, evolution because is so important. If you hold right? it too much or if you are too nostalgic about it, you won't grow. Yeah. Well, also, it's a revisionist history. If anyone has listened to any of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, you're like, oh, my God, that's how memory works? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm screwed. So it's awesome for me to see you at this point now where you're like, hey, we're all trying to get better. And I now know through all of the trials and tribulations of you growing Milk Bar that you're trying to find a different way without losing the DNA that yeah. made you successful. Yeah. And that, quite frankly, is what's so exciting to me when you open up on the West Coast because you're realizing, shit, we have to fucking do this a different way. Every yeah. time's a different way. Because we're different now than we were even a year ago. We're different than we were when we first started modeling out the store, which is one of the reasons why it's taken us so long to open. Because every week you wake up and you revisit it and you're like, oh, I don't like that idea anymore. I want to do this instead. And I think that's the agony and the ecstasy of what we do. It's so great and so daunting. But also, I, I believe that Momofuku is always a true reflection of you and the people that are a part of it. And Milk Bar is the same, right? Like, Milk Bar is at its best when it is a true, true reflection of who we are at Milk Bar at that moment. And so we go through the phases, right? <laughs> like, we go through the early phases and the awkward phases, and we go through good phases and bad phases. And that part is also very difficult because how do you both understand exactly who you are in that moment and keep it as, like, pure and spirited as possible? Because part of the secret to it is knowing but not knowing who you are. It's that pursuit. And I encourage anyone that's in L.A. or all the milk bars, but because it's opening up, go check it out. Yes. And not just that. Don't think, oh, this is what it's going to be forever. I think you're going to see something that's oh, constantly changing and course. testing and, you know. For as much as we have it together, we are superhuman or very human in our the mistakes that we will surely make. And my favorite part about 
opening a store is just opening it. Like the thing that drives me the most crazy right now is like, let's just open it. Because the sooner we open it, the sooner we can tweak it. And the sooner we can figure out what it isn't that it should be. And the sooner we can start in that process. And it's that process that's actually my favorite part. It's like the mathematician in me that's like, shit, we didn't figure, we didn't solve for X properly. We didn't solve for Y properly. And it's that part of it of figuring it out that I like the best. So come so on out. What's the address? 7150 Melrose. It's Melrose and North Detroit on the southwest corner because I'm still a crazy New Yorker at heart. All right. I've taken enough of your time. Thank you Thanks for coming for on. Me. Hey, and guess what? Thank you for everything. Oh, come on, Tess. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> You're going to make me cry. All right.